This podcast contains topics relating to sexual violence, drugs, suicide, and adult content. Jazz Rawlingson was just out of high school when she met Blake. At first, she wasn't interested in him because she thought he, funnily enough, seemed too nice. We met shortly after my dad's death, so my dad suicided when I was 18. I'd always been a really straight-A student, you know, pretty good kid, and so after school finished, I kind of went out into the world, and I was very naive and didn't really know a lot about, I guess, how a lot of people who maybe had gone to a public school were living, because I was quite sheltered and I had been lucky to go to a, a private school. So, yeah, I was very naive, and when I met him... I think I was quite charmed by, you know, his good looks and he was, he was really witty and um, he seemed like a really lovely guy. We went on a couple of dates but nothing really came of it. He was really up and down and a bit erratic, you know, he couldn't really get his life together. He had some issues with drugs and, and alcohol and I really just thought that I could save him. She told Blake she wanted to save herself for the right person, wait till marriage or wait until she was with someone for a very long time before losing her virginity. He told her her first time should be something special. Over the 18 months of their friendship and on-and-off relationship, Jazz says he really seemed to care for her, but there were some red flags. But there are a lot of warning signs at the beginning as well um, that I didn't really pay attention to and friends tried to warn me. My mum, yeah, really, really didn't like him at all and tried to keep me away from him but um, I just didn't want to listen and so I would keep seeing him on and off and then something would happen and he would break my heart or he would do something that was not um, not healthy at all in a relationship or do something that crossed my boundaries and I would be upset for a while and not speak to him for a few months and then I would go back which is what happens a lot of the time and it's hard for people to understand why you do that. I remember turning 20 and he came to my birthday. He asked me for money on my birthday so he could buy some alcohol. <laughs> so that was a good indicator of <laughs> what our friendship slash relationship was like. And then he said he'd drive me home, but he had had too much to drink, so then he couldn't drive home. He probably shouldn't have even driven me home in the first place. And I remember my mum was so angry and she didn't want him in our house because I think I must have already said enough to her over the last 18 months to to realise the games he'd sort of been playing with me, um, some of the like, sort of control issues and things like that. And I think she and, and my friends could see that I was just trying to fix him when that really shouldn't have been my job as a 19, 20-year-old. So he had to stay at our house that night because he couldn't actually drive home. And my mum was so angry and didn't want him there. There was always some excuse or he was always too scattered from drugs or this was going on, that was going on. And anyway, he got to this point where he he was just showering me in affection and he was saying weird things like he wanted to marry me and considering we'd never been in a um, a serious long-term relationship, that, that was weird to me, even as a, you know, 20-year-old. So I was kind of cautious of that and I'd said, I, I guess I was just sort of holding back a bit and kind of reveling in the fact that I felt like I had a bit of power now that he was suddenly falling at my feet and wanted to really commit to me and then it all came down to this one night where everything just all the trust that I'd built up in him for like 18 months was shattered. The next part of the podcast Jazz recounts how Blake 
someone she trusted, sexually assaulted her. If this particular topic is triggering, please skip ahead on the podcast. I think it was Easter 2006, and I was really mourning the loss of my dad for some reason. Um, That night I was feeling really upset about his suicide, and I just didn't want to stay at home. So I went out with some friends and had a couple of drinks, but, you know, being like 45 kilo, five foot two girl, you know, it doesn't take very many drinks at all for, for me to, you know, get... Um, a bit tipsy and I guess I I called him and um, wanted to see him because I was just so upset or I think he just turned up and he um, you know was was just doing the same same old lines you know about how much he cared about me and um, that he would always protect me and respect me so you know I just went back to stay at his family's house like I had you know several other times Um, I was really upset about my dad and then um, yeah, he decided to take advantage of me and basically go against everything that he had said for the last two years <laughs> um, about how he would never push me into anything and he'd respect me and all these things. And I physically couldn't fight back. I was just questioning everything from the next day, but I was also felt um, so guilty and like I couldn't be upset about what had happened because I'd chosen to go and stay you know, at his family's house. and. Yeah, and then he just made me question my my whole recollection of what had happened and what he'd done, and he was playing all these mind games with me. And, um, you know, I didn't know at the time that that's actually called gaslighting, but he was making out like it wasn't a big deal and then, you know, switching between saying, oh, you know, we had a really good night, to saying, oh, that's so cute, can't you remember what happened? And, oh, that didn't really happen, you know. And did you believe him? I kind of didn't know what to think because during the experience I had kind of blacked out. I just remember being in shock and I just couldn't actually understand that what was happening was happening because it didn't make sense in my mind because he'd spent, you know, like I said, 18 months, two years telling me he would never do something like this. So the fact that it was happening didn't make sense in my mind. Um, And so when he was saying that some of these things didn't happen... um, yeah I didn't know what to think I was kind of questioning it and yeah I guess I was like oh maybe I'm not maybe I don't remember that properly because that's when I blacked out and all I remember is blacking out at one point and then I woke up crying um and all I wanted was my dad in that moment so I just didn't know I I I went home feeling feeling really shameful but not knowing why feeling like I'd done something wrong and then questioning what had actually happened. So how did the rest of the relationship progress? Did he just pretend like nothing happened then after that period of time or what happened next in the relationship? Well the next morning he took me out for a really nice breakfast. (laughs) Nothing had happened which made me question myself even more (laughs) Um, and question whether I had a right to be upset with him because he just treated me to this really lovely breakfast. Um, And then I went home and I tried to hide it from my mum but she could tell something was wrong. I didn't really tell her everything, but she sort of worked out enough that she was just absolutely devastated, and that just made me feel even more ashamed um, that I'd done something wrong. After a couple of weeks of feeling really, really sick, I wanted to confront him, so I think I contacted him and found out where he was, and he was at a pub with his friends, of course, in in the early afternoon. Mm. (laughs) And um, I went and kind of just lost it. I just started 
you know, yelling at him once he got in the car about, you know, how, how could you do this to me and been feeling sick for weeks now about what happened and, and you, you just act like it was nothing. And um, he just couldn't comprehend what I was saying. I don't know whether he legitimate, legitimately has memory issues from his drug use or whether he was pretending conveniently that he couldn't remember. What Blake was doing to Jazz was a prime example of gaslighting. This is when someone uses psychological manipulation to doubt your own memories and sanity. Several years later, Jazz ran into him at the pub, and he yet again used this technique on her. He just acted like nothing had ever happened, like we were old friends or something like that. He he came up to me and was trying to talk to me, be a little bit flirty um, in the pub, and then we had a mutual friend who was sort of standing there as it was happening and um, he, he had no idea of our history. So it was really awkward because he decided to introduce us and was like, oh, hey, Jazz, this is my friend, da-da-da, and, you know, da-da-da, this is Jazz. And um, I was just like, oh, I just want to run away from here. This is awful. And then he was standing there just going, oh, she doesn't even talk to me anymore. Like, it's, you know, it's so crazy, like, she just ignores me completely and was just like muttering about basically making me out like I was this crazy person who'd just cut him out of my life for no reason. So, yeah, I think that was maybe the last time that I saw him, thankfully. Since her experience in an abusive relationship, Jazz has been advocating to put a stop to domestic violence. In 2016, she co-founded Brisbane's first memorial dedicated to people who have died as a result of domestic violence. The memorial is located at Emma Miller Place, near Roma Street Station in Brisbane. It allows people to quietly reflect on the deaths of the victims of domestic violence. So you've also started Brisbane's first memorial dedicated to victims of domestic violence. How did that come about? I started that with a friend in 2016 and it was really because we had both had our own experiences, you know, with um, with domestic violence or family violence and um, we were both really passionate about the issue and we'd, there'd just been a, a huge spate of attacks in a short span of time around then and we were just thinking, you know, we wish we could do something to honour the memory of these women and give some sort of support and community to the family left behind without just doing something like um, like a candle vigil or, um, you know, an online event or something like that. You know, those are all great, but we really wanted to create something that was going to be permanent and would have some sort of create some sort of lasting community effect and so we decided to create this memorial a space where people often frequent in Brisbane we thought you know it'd be really lovely to create a space where people who've been impacted by domestic violence in some way can come and sit under the waterfall here and you know have a a dedicated space to honor their loved one's memory that maybe has a bit more of a positive environment or positive vibe attached to it as opposed to just going to the cemetery um, and, and going to their loved one's gravesite. So, yeah, we decided to create it in this space, which is really, you know, beautiful and has the waterfall there. And on the front I had inscribed um, no more violence, no more silence. And so we want people who are passing through the park hopefully to come and, you know, if they're sitting there and they see that plaque, just to think about maybe what they can do 
to try and reduce our levels of domestic violence, whether that's, you know, as simple as speaking up when they hear violence happening in their neighbourhood, if they have a neighbour who, you know, has seems to have, there's a lot of, you know, shouting or violence, you know, not to ignore it, to actually either call the police if they think it's serious because even though it might be nothing and you might be embarrassed to do it, it's better than the alternative, you know, if it is if it is serious. Um, and if you do know your neighbours, it's a, it's a good opportunity to, to check in and just have a co- coffee or a tea with them and see how their life's been going and, you know, that might lead them to open up to you about something that's been going on. Basically just comes down to just choosing not to be silent about it, whether it's domestic violence towards, you know, a woman or a man. Like, we need to be vocal about standing up and supporting our friends when they are going through it and not being silent on the issues. We really need to get to it before it reaches that crisis level where a woman is actually afraid that she's going to die and is having to go to a shelter. Um, And this is kind of a controversial thing that I've talked about in the past. I think a lot of people don't want to acknowledge this. And one of the things that I think could make the greatest difference in reducing domestic violence, and I'll preface this by saying that it's it's about um, starting respect from the beginning towards, you know, women and towards men and you know, from an early age, is our consumption of our easy access of pornography. And a lot of people don't want to touch this subject because, um, you know, it can be seen as quite controversial. But we're living in an age now where young boys are no longer coming across, you know, just a sexy centerfold or, a, you know, like a, a nude image of a woman in their dad's magazines or something like that. The sort of pornography that boys are being introduced to now at ages, you know, 10, 11 and 12 is predominantly the most hardcore, torturous, sort of cruelest acts out there. So they're coming across incest porn, they're coming across bestiality porn, they're coming across teenage um, fantasy porn. And sometimes that is leading them to see actual child exploitation material as well. So it's very easy to just say we need to teach our young boys respect from the beginning when we're speaking specifically about violence towards women. And parents are trying to do that. But Pornography access is basically, it's almost impossible to stop young boys from seeing that now. And so when they're coming across this sort of content as their first exposure of of what, you know, quote unquote sex is, you know, is there any wonder that they're getting these messed up ideas about how women want to be treated or what women like? You know, I, I did a blog um, some time ago about the facts between pornography and domestic violence. And in that blog, I you know, mentioned many different sources from, you know, men's referral networks to police offices. And, you know, there were some really interesting things that came out. One of the ones that I remember was that um, there was New South Wales Police Assistant Commissioner, Mark Murdoch, and he said that the average age for young boys to come across pornography now is 14 to 25 years old. They are the biggest consumers of porn. And he said when 16-year-olds are having to be taught that it's not okay to have sex with someone who hasn't consented, that's a massive problem and they're learning this from pornography because and even people who are in the pornography space or you know in the sex industry have said this it's not showing them about what consent is you know to us it's a a fantasy and you know there are lots of different opinions on that but you know even those within the space have said you know we're, we're enacting a fantasy but when young boys are coming across this they're not seeing a clear dialogue about what someone is consenting to and so they're getting these ideas that this is 
how women want to be treated sexually or in a relationship. There was also a men's referral service manager, Nathan Digara, and he said that their services were receiving frequent calls about domestic violence that was stemming from unrealistic sexual ex- expectations and pornography. I think that that is one of the things that we really need to address and I think our governments really need to do more. And I think that if our governments were actually ready to get real about this issue, we might actually be able to change our future generation because if we could just stop kids from growing up with these unrealistic expectations of how women want to be treated stemming from pornography, I think that would that would create a huge change. So some other amazing work that you're doing is related to human trafficking. What made you interested in pursuing fighting this issue? Basically, I went to a festival when I was um, maybe around 25, had decided to do some volunteer work as a photojournalist. I was kind of in between jobs at the time and I was working in a cafe. I actually got fired from that job um, because I I took the weekend off to go and do this um, volunteer photojournalist thing which I was upset about at the time, but, you know, it's basically um, was the, the start of my whole career. So I look back on it now and I'm thankful that I made that decision. But I decided to go along to known as Easter Fest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's up in Toowoomba and have lots of music, lots of different amazing uh, talks that you could go along to. I went along to a couple of talks and I think one of them was about an organisation called Destiny Rescue. So I thought I would go and interview them and, and find out more about what they did. When I went and spoke to them and found out, you know, about just how prevalent human trafficking is today and they've brought awareness to the fact that every 26 seconds a child is sold. And I was just shocked and I had never really come across anything like that. And I remember walking through their tent looking at these photographs they have had at the time of children who were in need of a sponsor. And I remember looking at these faces and these girls were so young and some of them had already been, you know, rescued out of trafficking for, say, three years and they were 18 or they were 15 and they'd been out of trafficking for two years. And I just couldn't believe it. And it just broke my heart. And I just um, made that decision then that that I was going to sign up as a sponsor. Um, like I said, I just... I, basically just lost my job (laughs) but I made a decision that regardless of whether I was paying it out of you know my Centrelink money for the next month or few months however long it took me to to find a job which actually ended up being quite a few months I was going to sponsor this child I just knew that I had to do something to support this organization and so that was the start of it all and I started to sort of write articles about the issue and research it more and A couple of years later, I went overseas on a team trip with Destiny Rescue. So I got to meet one of the girls that I was sponsoring, but I also got to help with a lot of um, different projects. So there was a rescue girl who had actually started her own business. So we helped her with renovating this two, three story house, getting it ready for her to, to turn into her business. So like painting and, you know, sweeping out all the junk, did some help at one of the prevention homes as well with digging trenches for all of their food and things like that. Basically, I've just tried to do whatever I can over the years. Um, My husband and I still support um, Destiny Rescue financially. I've been looking at ways um, to partner with them. 
which um, I can't talk about just yet, but there is there are some exciting things coming out. And yeah, I just think that we, we should all, I think that it's important that we all find something that we're passionate about, some sort of social injustice in this world, and think about how we can make a difference. Well, it's fantastic what you're doing to help the causes of human trafficking and also for victims of domestic violence. It really is fantastic what you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming onto the show today. No worries. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Jazz Rawlingson. She not only has done incredible work for causes such as family violence and human trafficking, but also is a freelance journalist, writing coach, and is the author of Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day, a unique suicide prevention project she created that's aimed at reducing mental health stigma through lived experience stories. For more information on my guest today, you can connect with Jazz via her Facebook page, Thoughts from Jazz, or head to www.jazzrawlingson.com. Make sure you also check out the Nasty Woman Club Facebook page and Instagram page. This show was hosted and produced by myself, Demi Lynch. The Nasty Woman Club is a show dedicated to inspiring women telling their inspiring stories. If any of the topics discussed on the podcast has been triggering, please contact Lifeline at 131114. That's 131114.